Welcome to The Mushroom's Apprentice. Today, I'm going to talk about how we are manipulated and steered to think, believe, and act, which satisfies the whims of the few who are in charge of directing the many. This is not new. Leaders through time have used multiple forms of manipulation to steer the populace. Violence isn't always needed if you can induce the herd into an emotional state to where they will take it on themselves to carry out the plans of their overlords. A great example is the witch mania of Europe, where thousands of women and men were accused of witchcraft and tortured and burned alive. That could not have taken place without first whipping the masses into mindless fear and suspicion through repetitive and relentless propaganda. Well, nothing has changed, of course, because manipulation works on an unsuspecting populace. And today we are saturated in propaganda and mind control at every turn. And the tools for that are more sophisticated than ever. So I'm going to explore some of the classic techniques of social control, including an exploration into the early school system and how it developed into an indoctrination mechanism to mold the minds of the young and turn them into cogs in the wheel of industry and technology. Now, Terence McKenna used to talk about how mushrooms can delete the virus in the hard drive of the mind. But I discovered in my first few years of working with the mushroom that just because a person engages psychedelics, it does not mean that their mind is now open and free and they can see the matrix and the orchestrations of control with crystal clarity. On the contrary, the most indoctrinated people I spoke with in those early years were attendees at psychedelic conferences. I was just starting my study of the deeper tenets of law at that time, and I was surprised to hear how closed certain people were to that information, which is not taught in our schools, nor is it discussed in mainstream media, unless it is to vilify people who want autonomy from the corporate civil system we find ourselves in. Well, I was quite vociferously rebuffed by someone who is a leader in that world who lectured me about discussing these deeper tenets of law and considering them as probable pathways to freedom of choice, perhaps. I will tell you that the best psychedelic conference I ever attended was put on by the late Kai Wingo outside of Detroit. She invited me to speak and the attendees and the speakers were so warm and friendly and they were dialed in. There was no political correctness, no virtue signaling, just sharp, good-hearted people who wanted to come together and learn and share. And the people I spoke with knew how predatory and controlling the system was. They saw right through the media and government manipulation. And the conversations I had with those people were very inspiring. I remember talking with this awesome guy who had been studying the deeper tenets of law for years. He had no driver's license. And I remember he said, I'm a black man. I get pulled over all the time. Well, he knew how to stand on his rights honorably, and he ably navigated the system because of the knowledge that he gave to himself through his study of law and how the system works. This guy was not caught up in the propaganda machine. He could see right through it. Well, if we're going to wake up, 
we have to recognize propaganda and we have to know how it's used and implemented. We also need to have an understanding of how the mind works because those who utilize those elements of control understand the inner workings of the psyche far better than the average person. An excellent book to read on the subject is by French social scientist Gustave Le Bon, who wrote The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind. His book explores crowd psychology and the interesting loss of individuality, intellect, and common sense by the people who compose the crowd. The book gives an overview of how crowds are manipulated to behave in a certain way. And that book was read by a number of political tyrants who utilized the information he shared to their advantage. Lebon defines a crowd as, quote, in its ordinary sense of the word, crowd means a gathering of individuals of whatever nationality, profession, or sex, and whatever be the chances of what brought them together, end quote. He then writes, from a psychological point of view, the expression crowd assumes quite a different signification, end quote. He goes on to say that under specific circumstances, a crowd expresses in a way that is very different from the individuals composing it. Their thoughts and emotions have been directed by an outside influence, usually a leader of some nature, or through media influence today, aka propaganda or mind control. <laughs> in this kind of crowd, the individual's identity disappears and he or she becomes possessed by the group mind, LeBone calls the collective mind, which has its own clearly defined characteristics. And the crowd doesn't have to be located in one specific area. LeBone writes, quote, thousands of isolated individuals may acquire at certain moments and under the influence of, of certain violent emotions, such for example, a great national event, the characteristics of a psychological crowd. At certain moments, half a dozen men might constitute a psychological crowd, which may not happen in the case of hundreds of men gathered together by accident. On the other hand, an entire nation, though there may be no visible agglomeration, may become a crowd under the action of certain influences." End quote. Well, think about the intensity of these most recent three years and the collective psychosis of fear that grip people and cause them to say and do things they would not otherwise. And of course, this understanding has been used on the masses for God knows how long, where an event is created and staged by those in power to incite public outcry, thereby making it very easy to direct the citizenry into war or to give up certain basic rights in exchange for safety, etc. Lebon discusses three causes that create the crowd or horde or mob. The first cause is anonymity. Within the crowd he's speaking to, there is a sense of anonymity. It's that sense of safety in numbers, and it gives the individual who's been stirred into a particular mind state a delusional sense of power. And that opens the door for the darker parts of the individual that are normally suppressed to come forth, or the heroic parts that might not be expressed otherwise. All sense of individuality, moral fabric, principles, and personal responsibility 
disappear, as does rational thinking. And the individual, swept up in the moment, dissolves into the crowd and behaves in ways he never would on his own. The second cause is contagion. The contagion is the almost hypnotic or trance state in which the crowd assumes to where in Le Bon's words, quote, every sentiment and act is contagious and contagious to such a degree that an individual readily sacrifices his personal interest. This is an aptitude very contrary to his nature and of which a man is scarcely capable except when he makes part of a crowd, end quote. The third cause is suggestibility, and oh boy, do those who wield power capitalize on that through social media, entertainment, so-called news, etc., where they use keywords and phrases that elicit emotion from those viewing or listening. Le Bon uses the metaphor of the hypnotist who can bring people into a state of mind where they do things contrary to their personality. And these suggestions are not complex. They're actually very simple. And they're exaggerated by the force of emotion that the crowd is feeling. And once that particular uh, suggestion takes root within a crowd, it spreads through contagion and it intensifies. Leaders understand this very well, whether they are politicians or religious leaders, corporate leaders, etc. They will capitalize on that with the use of emotionally manipulative rhetoric that incites a passionate response in the crowd. And in this day and age, the crowd doesn't have to be assembled, as Le Bon stated. They can push this manipulation into the minds of those who regularly tune into their devices and their televisions. Le Bon writes, quote, the most careful observations seem to prove that an individual emerged for some length of time in a crowd in action soon finds himself either in consequence of the magnetic influence given out by the crowd or by some other cause of which we are ignorant in a special state which much resembles the state of fascination in which the hypnotized individual finds himself in the hands of the hypnotizer. The activity of the brain being paralyzed in the case of the hypnotized subject, the latter becomes the slave of all the unconscious activities of his spinal cord, which the hypnotizer directs at will. The conscious personality has entirely vanished. Will and discernment are lost. All feelings and thoughts are bent in the direction determined by the hypnotizer." End quote. In the forward to Charles McKay's book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, the author quotes Schiller, writing, quote, anyone taken as an individual is tolerably sensible and reasonable. As a member of a crowd, he at once becomes a blockhead, end quote. Well, Le Bon goes on to say, quote, moreover, by the mere fact that he forms an organized crowd, a man descends several rungs in the ladder of civilization. Isolated, he may be a cultivated individual. In a crowd, he is a barbarian, that is, a creature acting by instinct. He possesses the spontaneity, the violence, the ferocity, 
and also the enthusiasm and heroism of primitive beings whom he further tends to resemble by the facility with which he allows himself to be impressed by words and images, which would be entirely without action on each of the isolated individuals composing the crowd, and to be induced to commit acts contrary to his most obvious interests and his best known habits. An individual in a crowd is a grain of sand amid other grains of sand, which the wind stirs up at will." End quote. Well, that wind, of course, will be whoever is influencing and directing that crowd. Le Bon says that the crowd is intellectually inferior to the isolated individual. In fact, Le Bon writes that as soon as the individual joins the crowd, quote, his intellect standard is immediately and considerably lowered. End quote. Depending on the situation, the crowd can be criminal and commit appalling acts, or it can be heroic and achieve, and achieve extraordinary feats. And you can have an individual in the crowd who is a criminal in his day-to-day -day life, but as part of the crowd, he's swept up in the possessing forces of that crowd that, in this case, is part of a crowd on its way to do something heroic and noble. And that criminal is temporarily endowed with the principles of morality, just as someone with a kind and moral nature can turn into an absolute psychopath when swept up in a violent mob. So the crowd can be either worse or better than the individual. A crowd can be swept up by a particular sentiment or ideology that induces them into a heightened state of enthusiasm to where they risk life and limb for glory and honor. And Le Bon writes that the notion of impossibility disappears completely for the individual in a crowd so that they will put their life on the line unthinkingly for, in Le Bon's words, quote, beliefs, ideas, and phrases that they scarcely understand, end quote. Le Bon states that in terms of leadership, crowds usually favor the tyrant and the heroes most dear to the crowd resemble a Caesar type of personality. And that is the nature of the crowd in his observation, that they are submissive to an authoritarian figure and they will revolt against a feeble leader. Le Bon writes, quote, the masses have never thirsted after truth. Whoever can supply them with illusions is easily their master. Whoever attempts to destroy their illusions is always their victim, end quote. Now, my late teacher, Dr. Brew Joy, spoke of the transpersonal forces that would possess crowds, and he used the example of wartime, where soldiers were caught up in the collective spirit or trance of war, which, similar to what Le Bon was saying about the individual within the crowd, the soldiers would commit acts they would never on their own commit. Now, you could say they were doing their job as soldiers, but Brew noted the psychological state that war induces to where the individual is no longer held within the boundaries of their personality and corresponding morals and is now acting as part of a group that is under the collective spell of whatever is the inducement to war. The psychological traits of the crowd are explored by Le Bon in detail. A crowd is by nature irascible and it has no impulse control. It's unpredictable due to its emotional impulsiveness, which can make it very dangerous. 
Another characteristic of a crowd is its domineering force. And a crowd will demonstrate very harsh intolerance to anything that is in contradiction to its beliefs. Crowds are also incapable of reason, which makes them open to suggestion and the powers of the imagination. And the imagination can direct a crowd into seeing things that aren't really there or cause the crowd to act out based on what their imagination tells them rather than what the facts clearly show. Morally, a crowd can commit unthinkable acts of evil or it can commit extraordinary acts of altruism and bravery. Le Bon goes on to explore what influences the psychological attributes of a crowd and how it comes to its opinions and beliefs. He states that there are two determining factors, remote factors and immediate factors. Remote factors are that which has been put forth stealthily to cause the idea to take shape in the listener's mind so that the crowd is now primed to adopt certain convictions and reject everything contrary to this new belief. An example is the entertainment industry, which slips ideologies into film, sitcoms, children's television. It is so seamless and it goes unnoticed to where the ground of the mind is then prepared to adopt and express certain ideas and convictions that were not part of the collective mindset prior to that. Another example is modern dictionaries, where word meanings today are being changed, and the examples of those meanings are now reflecting the current propaganda, thereby normalizing certain ideologies in something as maybe innocent as a dictionary. So, the remote factors set the stage and you have to have them in place before the immediate factors come into play. LeBone writes, quote, the immediate factors are, are those which coming on the top of this long preparatory working in whose absence they would remain without effect serve as the source of active persuasion on crowds. That is, they are the factors which cause the idea to take shape and set it loose with all its consequences. The resolutions by which collectivities are suddenly carried away arise out of these immediate factors. It is due to them that a riot breaks out or a strike is depended, is decided upon, end quote. Well, how are the immediate factors of active persuasion created? The use of image on the crowd is very highly effective. And today we are bombarded by images on billboards, magazines, the internet, store windows, YouTube. <laughs> the image can also be spoken into the imagination of the crowd by a gifted speaker. And again, LeBon writes, the power of words is bound up with the images they evoke and is quite independent of their real significance. Words whose sense is the most ill-defined are sometimes those that possess the most influence. Such, for example, are the terms democracy, socialism, equality, liberty, etc., whose meaning is so vague that bulky volumes do not suffice to precisely fix it. Yet it is certain that a truly magical power is attached to those short syllables as if they contain the solution to all problems. They synthesize the most diverse unconscious aspirations and the hope of their realization. He then writes, and this is so key, quote, 
Reason and arguments are incapable of combating certain words and formulas. They are uttered with solemnity in the presence of crowds. And as soon as they have been pronounced, an expression of respect is visible on every countenance and all heads are bowed. By many, they are considered as natural forces, as supernatural powers. They evoke grandiose and vague images in men's minds. This very vagueness that wraps them in obscurity augments their mysterious power, end quote. Well, think about how leaders and influencers steer the masses with slogans and keywords and passionate rhetoric. And this shite is repeated over and over ad nauseum without presenting or allowing any rational argument to the contrary. We saw that played out in 2020 through 2022, and I don't think I need to repeat the catchy slogans that were hammered into our heads 24-7 and the ominous imagery, all of which was designed to engender rampant fear and compliance among the masses. Lebon goes on to explore the means of persuasion leaders use to get the masses to acquiesce. He explains that as soon as people form a crowd, they instinctively respond to the authority of a chief of some kind. And he writes, quote, in the case of human crowds, the chief is often nothing more than a ringleader or agitator, but as such, he plays a considerable part. His will is the nucleus around which the opinions of the crowd are grouped. A crowd is a servile flock that is incapable of ever doing without a master. The leader has most often started as one of the led. He has himself been hypnotized by the idea whose apostle he has since become. It has taken possession of him to such a degree that everything outside it vanishes and that every contrary opinion appears to him an error or a superstition. An example in point is Robespierre, hypnotized by the philosophical ideas of Rousseau and employing the methods of the Inquisition to propagate them, end quote. Now think about the colleges in this country that have turned into Marxist indoctrination camps. The minds of our bright young men and women have been taken over by exactly the people Le Bon speaks to, those who themselves have been hypnotized by whatever the ideology and are now strident apostles of the creed who induct the new young arrivals into their cult. And we end up with bright young people who are intolerant of any opinion or, God forbid, fact that challenges their newfound belief system. They have lost the ability to think critically and reason, and they are utterly swept up in the group mind. Lebon has more to say about the leaders of these crowds, and he is scathingly accurate in his assessment. He writes, quote, the leaders we speak of are more frequently men of action than thinkers. They are not gifted with keen foresight, nor could they be, as this quality generally conduces to doubt and inactivity. They are especially recruited from the ranks of those morbidly nervous, excitable, half-deranged persons who are bordering on madness. However absurd may be the idea they uphold or the goal they pursue, their convictions are so strong that all reasoning is lost upon them. They sacrifice their personal interest, their family, everything. The intensity of their faith 
gives great power of suggestion to their words. The multitude is always ready to listen to the strong-willed man who knows how to impose himself upon it. Men gathered in a crowd lose all force of will and turn instinctively to the person who possesses the quality they lack, end quote. And I'll read just a bit more because this is so powerfully relevant. Quote, these leaders are often subtle rhetoricians, seeking only their own personal interest and endeavoring to persuade by flattering base instincts. The influence they can assert in this matter, manner may be very great, but it is also always ephemeral. The men of ardent convictions who have stirred the soul of crowds have only exercised their fascination after having been themselves fascinated, first of all, by a creed. They are then able to call up in the souls of their fellows that formidable force known as faith, which renders a man the absolute slave of his dream. Of all the forces of humanity, Faith has always been one of the most tremendous, and the gospel rightly attributes to it the power of moving mountains, end quote. Le Bon states that no matter what social sphere a man hails from, the minute he joins a group, he quickly falls under the influence of a leader. How interesting now that individuals are looked down on in the U.S. as the country seeks deeper into the cold grip of collectivism in which the needs of the group are prioritized over the rights of the individual. And these last few years are ultimately serving as the remote factors Le Bon speaks to, preparing the ground of mind to ultimately accept totalitarianism for the greater good, of course. Now, Le Bon writes that leaders are divided into two distinguishable classes. You have the energetic, dynamic leaders who can express will at certain times, and then you have the rare leaders who possess an enduring strength of will. The energetic, dynamic leaders are used mostly to direct a violent enterprise, and these guys have the power to induct people into either heroism or hellish acts. Le Bon writes that these leaders are a force to be reckoned with, but their dynamism doesn't last. It serves a specific purpose, and when they return to their ordinary lives, they no longer display that strength of will. In fact, they possess an astonishing weakness of character and are impotent when it comes to reflection of character and conduct. The leaders with enduring strength of will are often founders of religions and extraordinary feats of undertakings. Le Bon describes them as possessing an extremely rare force of enduring will that commands everything around it and quote, nothing resists it, neither nature, gods, nor man, end quote. Le Bon then gives the formula that leaders use to induct the crowd into ideologies and beliefs, and that is done by the use of affirmation, repetition, and contagion. The action of those three expedients is slower than the stirring up of a crowd to get it to storm a building or a barricade, but the effects are long-lasting. These represent the mechanics of influence. Affirmation is always presented in a very simple and easy to understand way so that there's no complex reasoning needed. It's readily accepted and absorbed into the minds of the masses. An example of affirmation is a slogan or a creed or a mantra that infiltrates the mind and becomes accepted as truth. 
affirmation is used to sway the public to accept something in such a simplistic way that there is little to no argument to the contrary. Again, think of all the slogans we were dealt over these last few years and more on their way. You can bet on it. Okay, repetition is how the affirmations are reinforced. We learn by repetition. And Le Bon states that repetition drives the information deep into the unconscious, where it becomes embedded to the point where we forget where it even originated. We simply now believe it as self-evident, even if it isn't. You'll see this in advertising, which is pure black magic, and that uses all of this and more to seduce you into the spell. And of course, politics, entertainment, the music industry, education, etc. This calls to mind that famous quote by Joseph Goebbels that states, if you tell a lie enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it, end quote. Well, after a certain thing has been repeated enough times, the third expedient is contagion, where all of a sudden everyone has heard of it. This goes for ideas, trends, fads, sentiments, beliefs, urban legends, emotions, etc., etc. In crowds, the contagion of a particular emotion spreads like wildfire to where you will see a sudden panic where uncontrollable rage explode before your eyes. Those who follow media will end up aligning with whatever the sentiment or belief is that's being promoted to the masses. So even though they are out of proximity to where it originated, they are attuned to the airwaves and receptive to what comes through, making them willing targets for the indoctrination. Le Bon then discusses imitation, which is a consequence of contagion. People instinctively want to fit in, and they will go to great lengths to align themselves with current trends and accepted ideas. Think about college campuses and the pressure on young people to march in lockstep with political correctness or be ostracized and labeled, or how social media pressures people to accept whatever ideology or story is being promoted by making sure that flag or slogan is superimposed over their photograph. With contagion, the masses don't think or reason. They are easily swayed by clever influencers and driven by contagion to where they replicate opinions and behaviors that are not their own and have no logic to them. This results in a homogenized culture of people who cannot or will not think for themselves, but rather are propelled forward by the collective belief, despite the absence of reason and reflection. So affirmation represents the seed that's planted in the fertile ground of mass consciousness. And then repetition is like the hammer that pounds the message deep into the psyche to where it becomes universally accepted as truth, never mind where it actually originated. Contagion is like the disease that spreads rapidly and effectively throughout the populace, whether rich or poor or middle-class, the majority of people succumb to it. We have got to work hard to maintain sovereignty of mind. People want to fit in and they will imitate and adopt beliefs and opinions from dynamic influencers, be they politicians, actors, doctors, etc., who use the power of suggestion and emotional contagion to win followers. 
This is where we need to develop critical thinking and independent thought and mediate our emotions because all of that gets activated through the various modes of crowd control. We have to recognize distortion and programming and understand that the best ideas get co-opted and distorted by those who desire to have power over us for whatever reason. In the 20th century, the high priest of mass manipulation was Edward Bernays, who is known as the godfather of propaganda. He developed a particular approach that he called engineered consent. Bernays was the darling of powerful leaders, and he taught them how to, quote, control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing about it, end quote. This guy was diabolically brilliant, and he had a keen understanding of how the psyche works. So he knew that the key to steering the masses was to appeal not to their conscious mind, but to their unconscious. The weapon of propaganda is used to psychologically steer the masses by appealing to their fears and desires, and it works like a charm. And a charm, as you know, is a spell. This is a form of black magic. And propaganda continues to assault us all day, every day, through so-called news, entertainment, social media, education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it is highly effective for steering a crowd or an entire population. Those who don't recognize propaganda, and unfortunately that is the great majority of people, are doomed to fall prey to the whims of both elected and unelected leaders whose intentions are nefarious at best. Now, Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he read everything Uncle Sigmund wrote, and he became a master of psychological manipulation, using all manner of techniques to control the populace. Bernays started out as a journalist, and he worked with the Woodrow Wilson administration during World War I, where he served in the U.S. Committee on Public Information, which was the propaganda arm whose job was to sell the war to the American people as one that would, quote, make the world safe for democracy. How many times have you heard that one? His techniques were so successful that after the war, he figured that if propaganda works during wartime, it should work during peacetime. Over the course of his life, he was unapologetic about his profession, and he spoke openly about using propaganda as a tool for democratic and corporate manipulation of the populace. Now, because the word propaganda had a pejorative association, Bernays simply changed the word propaganda to public relations. We call that rebranding today. Well, Bernays wrote a book in 1928 titled Propaganda, and that book is the manual for social manipulation and control, which Bernays was all for. He strove to manipulate the mind of the masses, not just politically, but in science, art, advertising, education, and more. This book should be required reading for every high school student and every adult, but sadly, most people have never even heard of Edward Bernays. The book will open your eyes to how you're being programmed on every level, everywhere you turn. And once you see that, it loses its power over you, but you have to be able to recognize it because these folks are slick. The opening chapter of his book states, quote, 
The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country, end quote. Well, he would know, wouldn't he? Bernays went on to write, Quote, we are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. Whatever attitude one chooses to take toward this condition, it remains a fact that in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons, a trifling fact fraction of our 120 million, who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind, who harness old social forces and contrive new ways to bind and guide the world." End quote. Now, in the early part of the 20th century, the majority of Americans were quite frugal and tended to purchase what they needed more than what they wanted. This presented a problem for those in industry who sought to expand their companies and gain greater profits. Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers wrote in 1914, quote, any community that lives on staples has relatively few wants. The community that can be trained to desire change, to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed, yields a market to be measured more by desires than by needs. And man's desires can be developed so that they will greatly overshadow his needs." End quote. Well, after studying Freud's work, Bernays theorized that people could be induced into desiring things they don't need through keying into their unconscious desires, whether those desires were to be popular, successful, sexually attractive, et cetera, et cetera. The first big job Bernays got was through the American Tobacco Company in 1929. At that time, it was socially unacceptable for women to smoke cigarettes, which meant the American Tobacco Company was missing out on half the population. So if somehow they could get women to start smoking, that could double their profits. Seeing the potential in getting American women to do that, the president of the American Tobacco Company said, quote, it will be like opening a gold mine right in our front yard. Well, Bernays hired a group of New York socialites to march in the Macy's Day Parade and light up cigarettes. As he had connections in all the right places, Bernays alerted the major newspapers that a group of suffragettes would be marching in the parade and lighting up cigarettes that they called torches of freedom. He made sure to add that the women saw cigarettes as symbols of emancipation and equality with men. That ruse was a huge success and women fell for it. And after that, all the cigarette companies got into the act and directed their ads toward women, exploiting their desire to have more social freedom and autonomy and promoting cigarettes as being soothing and slimming. Now, women, for the most part, weren't accustomed to smoking. So to counter any awkwardness in how to actually smoke in public and look good doing so, the tobacco company Philip Morris sponsored a lecture series for women called The Art of Smoking. This gave women a false sense of power, of course, and ultimately God knows how many of them 
went to their death through lung cancer. At the end of the day, this is business, and these companies are about profit, not health. Interestingly, a few years later, Bernays did not want his wife smoking. And by then, he was aware of the connection between cancer and smoking, and he would regularly find her cigarettes and break them in half and flush them down the toilet. Now, in order to get Americans to start buying cars, Bernays used the power of association to sell them. A beautiful woman was always shown with the car, which activated the unconscious desire in men for sex. The association was, if you get the car, you get the girl. We have Bernays to thank also for the ubiquitous use of disposable cups, etc. He was hired by Dixie Cups, and he used the power of fear to convince people that only disposable cups were sanitary. And as part of the ad campaign, he founded the Committee for the Study and Promotion of the Sanitary Dispensing of Food and Drink. That man was dastardly brilliant and manipulative, and he understood the psyche better than the average American. He worked for the top brand companies, and he could name his price. He also created propaganda for numerous politicians, and Bernays eventually became one of the most powerful men in America. And you might be interested to know that Bernays actually couldn't stand people, and he called them stupid dopes. Bernays successfully manipulated Americans into desiring instead of needing. He stimulated their desires, and then he satisfied them with the purchase of a product. All right, let's take a further look at how people were being manipulated, managed, and programmed in the early 20th century to think and behave in ways that would serve those in positions of power long into the future. The industrial age was about the mechanization of people and animals, and the name of the game was efficiency and profit. This served to remove people from the small autonomous family business and the custom of apprenticeship and mastery of a craft to the factory, which was a bastion of inhumanity and corruption. Enter Frederick Winslow Taylor, who hailed from a wealthy Philadelphia family and became an engineer in the early 20th century. In 1912, he developed Taylorism, which was also known as scientific management because it was thought to be a scientific method of increasing productivity and efficiency in the workplace. Now, the term scientific management was actually coined in 1910 by Louis Brandeis, who was a famous lawyer for the Interstate Commerce Commission rate hearings. He was no stranger to the power of a cleverly devised title or slogan to steer public opinion. So we can see the term scientific management as the affirmation that Le Bon wrote about, followed by the repetition of the term, because of course, everyone was using that term alongside Taylorism, and then the contagion to where scientific management was ubiquitous, having gained national recognition and approval, including in the school system. Quote, what I demand of the worker, Taylor said, is not to produce any longer by his own initiative, but to execute punctiliously the orders given down to their minutest details, end quote. His summary of this new approach to the workplace is one, a regimen of science, not rule of thumb, two, an emphasis on harmony, not the discord of competition, three, an insistence on cooperation, not individualism, 
four, a fixation on maximum output, five, the development of each man to his greatest productivity. Now, John Taylor Gatto wrote, quote, scientific management or Taylorism had four characteristics designed to make the worker an interchangeable part of an interchangeable machine making interchangeable parts. Since each quickly found its analog in scientific schooling, let me show them to you. One, a mechanically controlled work pace. Two, the repetition of simple motions. Three, tools and technique selected for the worker. Four, only superficial attention is asked from the worker, just enough to keep up with the moving line. The con connection of all to school procedure is apparent." End quote. Richard Stites, author of Revolutionary Dreams, rightly described Taylor as, quote, an anti-intellectual, a hater of individuals, end quote. Taylorism fragmented the workforce. So rather than a single highly trained individual who could create something from start to finish in their own time and know every nuance of their craft, you instead had a factory full of employees, men, women, and child laborers who were given a single task that was a component of what was being built. And that task was repeated over and over all day long with different people specializing in a different component. But no one person could build that particular product entirely themselves. Through Taylorism, human beings became nothing more than cogs in a wheel in service to the wealthy industrialists. In this system, it was very easy to fire whoever they no longer needed as it was easy to train a new employee in just that particular area of fabrication. Scientific management eliminated the need for skilled labor and it did away with the tradition of apprenticeship of an artisan who would after a period of years become an autonomous master craftsman. Scientific management slash Taylorism standardized labor and the employees were under the ever-present scrutiny of the stopwatch. And that became what we call the assembly line. It was enthusiastically embraced for the decade after 1910. Now, in order to gain profits, human beings had to be turned into machines. Taylor wrote, quote, in the past, man has been first. In the future, the system will be first, end quote. So these human beings men, women, and children who formed this workforce were the industrial class, and they were the underclass who were thought of as expendable and exploitable. And by the way, when you look at photos of those poor souls working at those factories, you will see the full range of races among them. They were Irish, Scottish, Scandinavian, African-American, Hispanic, etc. The industrial class was multiracial. Poor is poor. And each and every one of those people were thought of as disposable and viewed as being the lowest class. All of them worked under appalling conditions. Check out the photographs of Lewis Hine from 1900 to 1910. He photographed child laborers in factories and in the cotton fields. And it is absolutely heartbreaking. Well, Taylorism didn't limit itself to just the factory. This is science after all. 
by implementing it in the school system, it was thought that it would not only create more efficiency within the schools, it would also produce compliant and programmed workers for the system. Now, to digress, public school, by the way, did not have the mythic beginning we've been told. Public school came about because of a politician named Horace Mann, who was contacted by the railroad interests in Connecticut, who wanted more control over their workers. So old Horace used his connections to implement the compulsion laws that remove children from the apprentice relationship and the access they had to independent education within their communities. Parents opposed this, and it took years to implement it. In fact, it took 15 years before any other state in the country would do this. Many children were taken by force to these new schools, some tied to donkeys. Parents at that time did not trust the government to take over the education of their children, and they knew this was about control. In his book, The Underground History of American Education, which I highly recommend you read, John Taylor Gatto writes, quote, on the night of June 9th, 1834, a group of prominent men, chiefly engaged in commerce, gathered privately in a Boston drawing room to discuss a scheme of universal schooling. Secretary of this meeting was William Ellery Channing, Horace Mann's own minister, as well as an international figure and the leading Unitarian of his day. The location of the meeting house is not entered into the minutes, nor are the names of the assembly's participants, apart from Channing. Even though the literacy rate in Massachusetts was 98%, and in neighboring Connecticut, 99.8%, the assembled businessmen agreed the present system of schooling allowed too much to depend upon chance. It encouraged more entrepreneurial exuberance than the social system could bear. And Taylor writes that the minutes of that meeting are the Appleton Papers collection, and they are found in the Massachusetts Historical Society. Well, the narrative of the day, of course, presented compulsory schooling as a way to educate the poor. But in reality, it was a way to indoctrinate and mold the minds of the young while their parents were coerced into wage labor. The railroads did not want workers who read books and thought critically. They wanted obedient drudges, and government schools were designed to produce just that, especially in the lower classes. In 1872, an article from the U.S. Bureau of Education stated, quote, inculcating knowledge teaches workers to be able to perceive and calculate their grievances, thus making them more redoubtable foes in labor struggles. Such an enabling is bound to retard the growth of industry, end quote. Sixteen years later, the Senate Committee Report on Education stated, quote, we believe that education is one of the principal causes of discontent of late years, manifesting itself on the laboring classes, end quote. And so public education was and is about answering questions, memorizing government-approved information, and following orders. Rather than cultivate the unique genius in each individual child, this much lauded system of Taylorism used them for experimentation in the name of technological efficiency and scientific progress. Gatto stated that scientism, quote, has no built-in moral breaks to restrain it other than legal jeopardy, end quote. 
John Taylor Gatto was an educator for over 40 years, and he has since passed away, but he was outspoken about the failings of the public school system. And I highly recommend you look up John Taylor Gatto on YouTube and listen to his talks. He was so absolutely brilliant, and his books are essential reading. Now, speaking about Taylorism in the schools, Gatto said, quote, the thinking behind this new kind of education was that you could convert sovereign human beings into human resources by making them incomplete. Unable to think in context, they could be converted into specialist tools for scientific management, end quote. Education theorist William C. Bagley called for, quote, unquestioning obedience in the new 20th century education. And he wrote, this new system would train children for life in 20th century America to fulfill the needs of commerce, industry, and government, end quote. Well, schools were increasingly taken over by business and ideological interests. And again, Gatto writes, quote, in the preface to the classic study on the effects of scientific management on schooling in America, education, and the cult of efficiency, Raymond Callahan explains that when he set out to write, his intent was to explore the origin and development of business values in educational administration, an occurrence he tracks to about 1900. Callahan wanted to know why school administrators had adopted business practices and management parameters of assessment when, quote, education is not a business, the school is not a factory, end quote. Could the inappropriate procedure be explained simply by a familiar process in which ideas and values flow from high status groups to those of lesser distinction? As Callahan put it, quote, it does not take profound knowledge of American education to know that educators are and have been a relatively low status, low power group, end quote. But the degree of intellectual domination shocked him. What was unexpected was the extent not only of the power of business industrial groups, but of the strength of the business ideology and the extreme weakness and vulnerability of school administrators. I had expected more professional autonomy and I was completely unprepared for the extent and degree of capitulation by administrators to whatever demands were made upon them. I was surprised and then dismayed to learn how many decisions they made or were forced to make, not on educational grounds, but as a means of appeasing their critics in order to maintain their positions in the school." End quote. Well, in 1911, a full-scale media assault was inflicted on the early public school system in an anti-intellectualism strategy to move public schooling away from any kind of actual intellectual cultivation in favor of a tailorist, standardized, factory setting of regimented lessons and behaviorist dictated conduct in order to form the workforce desired by financiers and industrialists. Numerous influential groups fixed their gaze on school children who had no concept of the social agendas these groups sought to implement. Now back to Le Bon, this movement began with the anti-intellectual affirmation that public schools were ineffective in providing a competent workforce and therefore a failure. And then the repetition of that theme took over all the major media, including Ladies Home Journal and the Saturday Evening Post, each of which had millions of readers. Readers 
were hammered with repetitive sentiments on the futility of intellectual development and steered toward the Taylorist form of so-called education for the purpose of industry only. The Saturday Evening Post wrote, quote, Miltonized, Chaucerized, Virgilized, Schillered, physicked and chemicaled, the high school should be of no use in the world, particularly the business world, end quote. And the Dean of Columbia Teachers College, James E. Russell stated, quote, if school cannot be made to drop its mental development obsession, the whole system should be abolished, end quote. Thus, the affirmation through repetition became the contagion, and the great majority of people were steered in the very direction that the social engineers from various groups, government agencies, and industries desired, and our school system today still follows that. And I won't even bother to comment on the deplorable state of our schools today. Gatto wrote, quote, traditional education can be seen as sculptural in nature, Individual destiny is written somewhere within the human being, awaiting dross to be removed before a true image shines forth. Public schooling, on the other hand, seeks a way to make mind and character blank so others may chisel the destiny thereon. And that is from the Underground History of American Education. Now, one of the major influences on the public school system were the behaviorists. The bell in school that divided each lesson was a result of Pavlov's experiments on dogs, and it was a tool of behavior modification serving to create a specific automatic response. This is known as Pavlovian conditioning. In his experiments on dogs, Pavlov used a bell, and every time he rang the bell, the dogs would come and he would feed them. After doing this several times, he would ring the bell and there would be no food, yet the dogs would be salivating because they would associate the bell with food. In the factory setting, the steam whistle would go off and people would immediately stop what they were doing and go outside for a break, smoke a cigarette, etc. And then the bell would go off again and up they would get and back inside they'd go to continue working. And then at the end of the day, the bell would go off and they would leave. Now, the bell also serves to compartmentalize the mind to where it has difficulty thinking in context. Interruption jars the thought process. And in the school setting, where a subject is taught for a certain amount of time, that subject is then interrupted by the bell, which breaks the thought process. And then a completely new subject is introduced apart from the prior one. This interruption by the bell occurs six or seven times a day, five days a week. Well, another behaviorist of note was B.F. Skinner, and he was a psychologist and behaviorist who was known as the father of behaviorism. Behaviorism is a theory of learning based on the assumption that all behaviors are developed through conditioning as the individual interacts with the environment and its stimuli. The mind isn't considered in this area of study. The focus rather is on observable behavior. Well, Skinner developed what he called operant conditioning based on this theory, where the focus was on the causes of a particular action and its consequences. Skinner developed a punishment and reward system to condition his subjects to adopt specific behaviors and eliminate others. He was a totalitarian, and he was an advocate for tightly managed social environments, particularly schools. Skinner wrote, Quote, 
It is in the nature of scientific progress that the functions of autonomous man be taken over one by one as the role of the environment is better understood. It is in the nature of an experimental analysis of human behavior that it should strip away the functions previously assigned to autonomous man and transfer them one by one to the controlling environment, end quote. Well, the Skinner theory was imposed in schools to where his operant conditioning was utilized as a punishment reward system in the learning environment. It was theorized that desired behaviors that are rewarded would continue and undesirable, and undesirable behaviors that are punished would be eliminated. Positive reinforcement increases the frequency of a desired behavior. So if a student answers a question correctly or behaves in a way that is desired, they are of course rewarded. With negative reinforcement, if a student behaves in an undesirable way, they get the consequences. For instance, if the assignment given by the teacher wasn't completed, that student might have to stay after school, which is known as detention. That negative reinforcement weakens the undesirable behavior. Well, this sounds quite reasonable, of course, but in the school system, as in the workplace, this was also used as a means to manipulate and control. Skinner is famous for developing something called the Skinner box, which was an experimental apparatus designed to contain the subject, which was usually a rat or a pigeon, and study the effects of punishment and reward on animal behavior. We can also see that box as a microcosm of the system of control we call society. And Skinner said himself that what he observed in animals in that apparatus could be moved from the pigeon to the human being. He stated that the basis of all behavior is when a human learns that a certain behavior has a consequence. And with that understanding, someone in a position of authority can implement certain programs and strategies that utilize operant conditioning to get people to behave in a desired way. A cult is a very good example of this, where the new recruit is isolated, similar to a Skinner box, and subject to brainwashing techniques that reward or punish depending on the strategy of the cult. Well, from 1922 to 1929, the Rockefellers, the Kelloggs, and the Harrimans sent over $50 million in funding to various U.S. universities for research into the psychological methods of control that have been used on an unsuspecting populace to this day. A populace, by the way, that has no idea that they're being social engineered in ways that have changed and continue to change the very nature of our society. Another method of manipulation and influence was the television. And the television took over every home in America after the Second World War, and it has served as a very potent means of programming ever since. And they even call the shows on television programs. <laughs> and there would be an interruption every so often that would say, we interrupt your programming for the following message. So they're not trying to hide it. Well, flat screen TVs adorn the walls of countless family rooms today, in addition to how ubiquitous our devices have become. And still today, the television is often left on for hours into the night, beaming plastic newscasters, mindless sitcoms and game shows, along with sophisticated dramatic series, all of which contain both subtle and overt social engineering. 
the viewer is put into a trance, whether they are watching television or glued to their iPhone, they're lulled into a relaxed alpha state where they become very suggestible. Of the television, Joyce Nelson, author of The Perfect Machine, wrote, as a real life experience is increasingly replaced with the mediated experience of television viewing, it becomes easy for politicians and market researchers of all sorts to rely on a base of mediated mass experience that can be evoked by appropriate triggers. The TV world becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The mass mind takes shape. Its participants act according to media-derived impulses and believing them to be of their own personal volition arising out of their own desires and needs. In such a situation, whoever controls the screen controls the future, the past, and the present, end quote. Well, she wrote that in 1987, and I would say with the technology we have today, that statement is no less true and no less concerning. The industrial age and the age of technology in which we find ourselves now have certainly brought us numerous conveniences, and they have served to augment the self-assigned agents of social control in ways that are unfathomable to the majority of people. It behooves us to recognize the strategies and tools of manipulation and control so that we do not fall prey to the whims of those who desire to steer us. We must reclaim our minds and exercise the agency that is our birthright as a people. I'm going to finish this first hour here, and in the second hour, I will explore more on this subject, including the Prussian roots of our school system, the techniques used by cults to overtake the minds of their recruits, and more. Knowledge is power, and the more people who understand how social manipulation works and how it's implemented, the less people will fall prey to methods of control that seek to steer us away from our rightful destinies as sovereign individuals. So please join me at themushroomsapprentice.com, and I will hope to see you there. Slancha. Welcome back. I hope you are realizing from the first hour that we as a people have been prevented from accessing not only so much of what this life has to offer, but more so our own unique genius has been thwarted and suppressed since childhood by a repressive school system designed to eradicate independent thinking and serve the wealthy elites who have shaped the framework of our modern society from government to media, entertainment, education, medicine, law, psychology, religion, it's all regulated. The obsessive compulsive greed and lust for control these people have exercised in these last 150 years has smothered what would have been an avalanche of entrepreneurial competition put forth by an actual educated and enlightened citizenry. As it is, those who dared to invent technologies that actually serve the people and the environment and deliver radiant health and wellness have been snuffed out. Their inventions either purchased, stolen, and shelved, or destroyed. We have been managed, indoctrinated, demoralized, and infantilized. The industrialist financiers have done their level best to eradicate any competition from those they look down upon. How do we counter this? 
It begins with an understanding of the depth of psychological programming people have been subject to since the rise of the Industrial Revolution and its robber baron elitist, whose foresight has shaped what we call society today. If we can't recognize what's being done to us and to our children every single day, then we are doomed to live as pawns on their chessboard. There is no presidential candidate who is going to save us. As long as we continue to seek out a leader to take care of things, we abdicate our sovereign right to govern ourselves and utilize our God-given gift of mind to create something truly of value. It is my hope by sharing this information with you that you will wake up even more from their spell and see with crystal clarity the con job foisted upon you everywhere you turn, and that you will be inspired to give yourself a true education, one that you'll have to dig for as more and more areas of truth are censored in an effort to keep the populace listless and stupefied. Yet in the words of the Greek playwright Sophocles, what is sought may be found, but truth unsearched for seldom comes to light. Well, how interesting that that quote comes from the ancient world and yet is so relevant to our modern day reality. That is because human nature doesn't change. There will always be those who seek to dominate and deceive. And that is why the ancients gave us maxims that are as true today as they were 10,000 years ago. And they are navigation tools on how to move through this beautiful and terrible world that can be a very harsh teacher. But at the end of the day, it's up to each of us to address and examine the issues that are threatening us and utilize the wisdom of the ancients to lift ourselves up with knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. So let's take a good look at how the school system in this country came into being so we can better understand how the fruits of our creativity and brilliance have been undermined. Now, I like to go to what I call the origination point of an issue to get a thorough understanding of the present day circumstances. So let's take a look at the Prussian system of schooling, which was the inspiration and the blueprint for the American school system and the foundation of social conditioning and control of the minds of the populace. I will be reading from John Taylor Gatto's superb book, The Underground History of American Education, throughout this hour, because he so brilliantly and eloquently lays out the situation. And I am honored to be able to share this great man's knowledge and wisdom with you. In 1806, the Battle of Jena occurred where Napoleon's troops of 122,000 men, the majority of whom were amateur soldiers, fought and defeated the Prussians and the Saxons, 114,000 troops in Saxony, which is known as modern Germany today. This defeat resulted in the reduction of Prussia to half its size at the signing of the Treaty of Tilsit in 1807. Well, that was a demoralizing wake-up call to Prussia. In 1807, a series of impassioned speeches designed to mobilize and inspire the German people were given by Johann Gottlieb Fichte, a German philosopher and founder of German idealism. His speeches were memorialized in a historical document known as 
the addresses to the German nation, and that ultimately birthed the first compulsion schools in the West. Ficht made it crystal clear the children must be subject to rigorous conditioning by state authority rather than traditional parenting. The new motto was to be work makes free and somehow dedicating one's entire life and labor to the good of the state was the pinnacle of true freedom. Gatto writes, quote, here in the genius of semantic redefinition lay the power to cloud men's minds, a power later packaged and sold by public relations pioneers Edward Bernays and Ivy Lee in the seed time of American forced schooling, end quote. This was the first time in history that compulsory schooling was successful as past attempts were ignored by the populace. And even at that time, there were children who attended school and others who didn't. And the same was true for the US into the early 20th century. And Gatto writes that even in 1920, only 32% of children furthered their education beyond elementary school. In Switzerland, at the time of his writing, Gatto reported that only 23% of its students attended high school, yet Switzerland enjoys the highest per capita, per capita income in the world. Gatto writes, quote, Prussia was prepared to use bayonets on its own people as readily as it wielded them against others. So it's not at all that surprising the human race got its first effective secular compulsion schooling out of Prussia in 1819. The Prussian mind, which carried the day, held a clear idea of what centralized schooling should deliver. One, obedient soldiers to the army. Two, obedient workers for mines, factories, and farms. Three, well-subordinated civil servants trained in their function. Four, well-subordinated clerks for industry. Five, citizens who thought alike on most issues. Six, national uniformity in thought, word, and deed." End quote. And he continues, quote, the area of individual volition for commoners was severely foreclosed by Prussian psychological training procedures drawn from the experience of animal husbandry and equestrian training, and also taken from past military experience. Much later in our own time, the techniques of these assorted crafts and sullen arts became discoveries in the pedagogical pseudoscience of psychological behaviorism. Prussian schools delivered everything they promised. Every important matter could now be confidently worked out in advance by leading families and institutional heads because well-schooled masses would concur with a minimum of opposition. This tightly schooled consensus in Prussia eventually combined the kaleidoscopic German principalities into a united Germany after a thousand years as a nation in fragments. What a surprise the world would soon get from this successful experiment in national centralization. Under Prussian state socialism, private industry surged, vaulting resource-poor Prussia up among world leaders. Military success remained Prussia's touchstone, end quote. The influence of Prussia state schooling model made its way to the U.S. three decades later. And check out what Gatto has to say, quote, traditional American school purpose, 
piety, good manners, basic intellectual tools, self-reliance, etc., was scrapped to make way for something different, our historical destination of personal independence gave way slowly to Prussian purpose schooling, not because the American way lost in any competition of ideas, but because for the new commercial and manufacturing hierarchs, such a course made better economic sense. This private advance toward nationalized schooling in America was partially organized, although little has ever been written about it. Arrestus Brownson's journal identifies a covert national apparatus to which Brownson briefly belonged, already in place in the decade after the War of 1812, one whose, whose stated purpose was to Germanize America, beginning in those troubled neighborhoods where the urban poor huddled and where disorganized new immigrants made easy targets, according to Brownson. Enmity on the part of old stock middle class and working class populations toward newer immigrants gave these unfortunates no appeal against the school sentence to which Massachusetts assigned them. They were in for a complete makeover, like it or not, end quote. Thirteen years before the first compulsion law was in place in the U.S., German-style teachers, teachers' seminaries were put in place, and it was pointed out by one critic of the current administration that these particular teaching seminaries were, quote, a thinly disguised attack on local and popular autonomy. Gatto writes, quote, the critic Brownson allowed that state regulation of teaching licenses was a necessary preliminary only if school were intended to serve as a psychological control mechanism for the state and as a screen for a controlled economy. If that was the game truly afoot, said Brownson, it should be reckoned an act of treason, quote, where the whole tendency of education is to create obedience, end quote. Brownson then said, quote, all teachers must be pliant tools of government. Such a system of education is not inconsistent with the theory of Prussian society, but the thing is wholly inadmissible here, end quote. He further argued that, according to our theory, the people are wiser than the government. Here, the people do not look to the government for light, for instruction, but the government looks to the people. The people give law to the government. He concluded that, quote, to entrust government with the power of determining education, which our children shall receive, is entrusting our servant with the power of the master. The fundamental difference between the United States and Prussia has been overlooked by the Board of Education and its supporters, end quote. Well, over in Prussia, compulsion schooling, was fully in place by 1819, touted as utopian. In reality, it determined to make people into machines for the state. Known as Volkskulen, the people's place, it steered its students away from the pleasures of reading, the opinion being that reading produced dissatisfaction. And so illiteracy became the standard, as reading in Gatto's words, quote, offered too many windows onto better lives, too much familiarity with better ways of thinking. It was a gift unwise to share with those permanently consigned to low station, end quote. 
Well, so much for Prussian schools being the people's place. They were very strict about keeping the classes in their place. The structure was a three-tiered system where just one half of 1% of students attended the Akademienschulen to become the future policymakers. Gatto wrote that these students were taught, quote, how to think strategically, contextually in wholes. They learned complex processes and useful knowledge, studied history, wrote copiously, argued often, read deeply, and mastered tasks of command, end quote. Below that was the Realschulen, which was geared for what Gatto describes as, quote, the proletariat of engineers, architects, doctors, lawyers, career civil servants, and other assistants as policy thinkers at times would require. From 5 to 7.5% of all students attended these real schools, learning in a superficial fashion how to think in context, but mostly learning how to manage materials, men, and situations, to be problem solvers. This group would also staff the various policing functions of the state, bringing order to the domain. Finally, at the bottom of the pile, a group between 92 and 94% of the population attended people's schools, where they learned obedience, cooperation, and correct attitudes, along with rudiments of literacy and official state myths of history, end quote. The Prussian state school system was lauded in this country, and in the early 19th century, numerous men traveled to Prussia to observe and report on its success. Books were written about these schools, including John Grissom's A Year in Europe, which influenced such people as Thomas Jefferson and other prestigious Americans, and the net was effectively cast to capture the minds of Americans. Michigan had a large number of German immigrants, and it became the first state to implement a state superintendency of education. That opened the door to state control of schooling, which prepared the ground for the compulsion laws to take place. In 1843, Horace Mann presented his seventh report to the Boston School Committee, which ranked Prussia ahead of all nations in schooling. He was especially enamored with the non-intellectual approach of the Volkskulen, as well as the psychological form that an illiterate educator by the name of Pestalozzi had created for the Prussian schools. Mann was impressed by the separation of age groups, the multi-layered supervision, and the teacher training, and he enthusiastically pushed for a radical new change in how American children were instructed to read, moving away from the traditional alphabet system that had produced literacy through the country to the Prussian hieroglyphic-style technique. And you will laugh when you hear that this stuffed shirt elitist never actually observed any Prussian school in operation because his visit to Prussia took place after the schools had closed for the summer. But far be it for old Horace to admit such a detail to his readers. Gatto exposes man's writing. Quote, Man arrived in Prussia when its schools were closed for vacation. He toured empty classrooms, spoke with authorities, interviewed vacationing schoolmasters, and read piles of dusty official reports. Yet from this non-experience, he claimed to come away with a strong sense of the professional competence of Prussian teachers. 
all admirably qualified and full of animation. His wife, Mary of the famous Peabody's, wrote home, quote, we have not seen a teacher with a book in his hand in all of Prussia. No, not one, end quote. This wasn't surprising, for they hardly saw teachers at all. Equally impressive, he wrote, was the wonderful obedience of children. These German kinder had, quote, innate respect for superior years, end quote. The German teacher Kor, man continued, writing, quote, the finest collection of men I have ever seen, full of intelligence, dignity, benevolence, kindness, and bearing, end quote. Never, says man, did he witness an instance of harshness and severity. All is kind, encouraging, animating, sympathizing. On the basis of imagining this miraculous vision of exactly the Prussia he wanted to see, Mann made a special plea for changes in the teaching of reading. He criticized the standard American practice of beginning with the alphabet and moving to syllables, urging his readers to consider the superior merit of teaching entire words from the beginning." End quote. Well, meanwhile, thousands of prominent American men were traveling to Germany over the course of the 19th century to study in its research universities and receive what became a highly coveted German PhD. Gatto writes, quote, those so degreed became university presidents and department heads, took over private industrial research bureaus, government offices, and the administrative professions. The men they subsequently hired for responsibility were those who found it morally agreeable to offer obeisance to the Prussian outlook. In this leveraged fashion, the gradual takeover of American mental life managed itself." End quote. The Prussian compulsory school system was enthusiastically carried forward, claiming the innocent and ultimately serving the needs of the industrialist elites, while the propaganda lauded early indoctrination of all children as the obvious path to an orderly scientific society, quote, one controlled by the best people, now freed from the obsolete straitjacket of democratic traditions and historic American libertarian attitudes, end quote. Gatto writes, quote, you shouldn't be fooled any more than Charles Francis Adams was fooled when he observed in 1880 that what was being cooked up for kids unlucky enough to be snared by the newly proposed institutional school net combined characteristics of the cotton mill and the railroad with those of state prison, end quote. Gatto speaks to the financiers and their vision for the subjection of the American proletariat, writing, quote, between 1896 and 1920, a small group of industrialists and financiers, together with their private charitable foundations, subsidized university chairs, university researchers, and school administrators, spent more money on forced schooling than the government itself did. Carnegie and Rockefeller, as late as 1915, were spending more themselves. In this laissez-faire fashion, a system of modern schooling was constructed without public participation. The motives for this are undoubtedly mixed, but it will be useful for you to hear a few excerpts from the first mission statement of Rockefeller's General Education Board as they occur in a document called Occasional Letter Number 1 from 1906. Quote, 
In our dreams, people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. The present educational conventions, intellectual and character education, fade from our minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive folk. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from among them authors, educators, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen of whom we have ample supply. The task we set before ourselves is very simple. We will organize children and teach them to do in a perfect way the things their fathers and mothers are doing in an imperfect way, end quote. And so compulsory schooling continued, well-funded and unabated. Gatto writes, quote, in the first decades of the 20th century, a small group of soon-to-be-famous academics, symbolically led by John Dewey and Edward Thorndike of Columbia Teachers College, Elward P. Coverley of Stanford, G. Stanley Hall of Clark, and an ambitious handful of others, energized and financed by major corporate and financial allies like Morgan, Astor, Whitney, Carnegie, and Rockefeller, decided to bend government schooling to the service of business and the political state, as it had been done a century before in Prussia. The entire academic community here and abroad had been Darwinized and Galtonized by this time, and to this contingent, school seemed an instrument for managing evolutionary destiny. In Thorndike's memorable words, conditions for controlled selective breeding had to be set up before the new American industrial proletariat took things into their own hands, end quote. Gatto continues writing, quote, by 1917, the major administrative jobs in American schooling were under the control of a group referred to in the press of that day as the Education Trust. The first meeting of this trust included representatives of Rockefeller, Carnegie, Harvard, Stanford, the University of Chicago, and the National Education Association. The chief end, wrote Benjamin Kidd, the British evolutionist, in 1918, was to, quote, impose on the young the ideal of subordination, end quote. At first, the primary target was the tradition of independent li livelihoods in America. Unless Yankee entrepreneurialism could be extinguished, at least among the common population, the immense capital investments that mass production industry required for equipment weren't conceivably justifiable. Students were to learn to think of themselves as employees competing for the favor of management, not as Franklin or Edison had once regarded themselves as self-determined free agents. Only by a massive psychological campaign could the menace of overproduction in America be contained. That's what important men and academics called it. The ability of Americans to think as independent producers had to be curtailed, end quote. And then Gatto writes, quote, 
I know how difficult it is for most of us who mow our lawns and walk our dogs to comprehend that long range social engineering even exists, let alone that it began to dominate compulsion schooling nearly a century ago, end quote. Gatto cites Arthur Calhoun's 1919 Social History of the Family, which, quote, notified the nation's academics what was happening. Calhoun declared that the fondest wish of utopian writers was coming true. The child was passing from its family, quote, into the custody of community experts, end quote. He offered a significant forecast that in time we could expect to see public education, quote, designed to check the mating of the unfit, end quote. You have to understand that the wealthy industrialists and robber barons who were funding the implementation of this compulsory schooling were also eugenicists. Eugenics is about improving the gene pool of human beings. So you have self-appointed elitists who think they can decide whose genes are inferior and whose are superior. And when you delve more deeply into the history of compulsory schooling and read the thinking of these people, and I have read you just a small sampling of those quotes, it's as plain as day that they regard a large segment of the population to be wholly inferior. And do not think that the progeny of those elite families has shed any of that thinking. Just do a little reading on the World Economic Forum website, and you'll get more than a taste of how we the people are regarded. These elitists are also Malthusians, and Malthusianism is yet another theory that posits that according to the Malthusian model, population growth is exponential, yet the Earth's resources are linear and will soon dry up to the point where the Earth cannot handle its population. That's where population control, like sterilization and war, come in. I will do an episode on eugenics and Malthusianism in the future because that insanity is alive and well and playing out right before our eyes today. And the general public doesn't have a clue. Again, knowledge is power. When you see the con, you are no longer the mark. And a mark is a slang term for an easy victim. Okay, get ready for this next piece on our school system. In the late 60s, early 70s, Gatto wrote that teacher training in the U.S. was, quote, covertly revamped through coordinated efforts of a small number of private foundations, select universities, global corporations, think tanks, and government agencies, all coordinated through the U.S. Office of Education and through key state education departments like those in California, Texas, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and New York. Important milestones of the transformation were, one, an extensive government exercise in futurology called Designing Education for the Future. Two, the Behavioral Science Teacher Education Project. And three, Benjamin Bloom's multi-volume Taxonomy of Educational Objectives, an enormous manual of over a thousand pages, which in time impacted every school in America. Take them one by one and savor each. Designing Education, produced by the Education Depart Department, redefined the term education 
after the Prussian fashion as, quote, a means to achieve important economic and social goals of a national character, end quote. State education agencies would henceforth act as on-site federal enforcers, ensuring the compliance of local schools with central directives. Each state education department was assigned the task of becoming, quote, an agent of change, quote, and advised to, quote, lose its independent identity as well as its authority, end quote, in order to, quote, form a partnership with the federal government, end quote. The second document, the gigantic behavioral science teacher education project outlined teaching reforms to be forced on the country after 1967. If you ever want to hunt this thing down, it bears the U.S. Office of Education contract number OEC 09320424042, and in brackets B10. The documents, the document sets out clearly the intentions of its creators. Nothing less than, quote, impersonal manipulation through schooling of a future America in which, quote, few will be able to maintain control over their opinions, end quote. An America in which, quote, each individual receives at birth a multi-purpose identification number, which enables employers and other controllers to keep track of underlings and to expose them to direct or subliminal influence when necessary. Readers learned that, quote, chemical experimentation on minors would be normal procedure in this post-1967 world, a pointed foreshadowing of the massive Ritalin interventions which now accompany the practice of forced schooling. The Behavioral Science Teacher Education Project identified the future as one, quote, in which a small elite will control all important matters, where one participatory democracy will largely disappear. Children are made to see through school experiences that their classmates are so cruel and irresponsible, so inadequate to the task of self-discipline, and so ignorant they need to be controlled and regulated for society's good. Under such a logical regime, school terror can only be regarded as good advertising. It is sobering to think of mass schooling as a vast demonstration project of human inadequacy, but that is at least one of its functions. Postmodern schooling, we are told, is to focus on, quote, pleasure cultivation and on other, quote, attitudes and skills compatible with a non-work world. Thus, the socialization classroom of the century's beginning, itself a radical departure from schooling for mental and, mental and character development, can be seen to have evolved by 1967 into a full-scale laboratory for psychological experimentation. School conversion was assisted powerfully by a curious phenomenon of the middle to late 1960s, a tremendous rise in school violence and general school chaos, which followed a policy declaration, which seems to occurred nationwide, that the disciplining of children must henceforth mimic 
the due process practice of the court system. Teachers and administrators were suddenly stripped of any effective ability to keep order in schools, since the due process apparatus, of necessity a slow, deliberate matter, is completely inadequate to the continual outbreaks of childish mischief in all schools' experience. Now, with a time-honored ad hoc armory of disciplinary tactics to fall back on, disorder spiraled out of control, passing from the realm of annoyance into more dangerous terrain entirely as words surged through student bodies that teacher hands were tied, and each outrageous event that reached the attention of the local press served as an advertisement for expert prescriptions. Who had ever seen kids behave this way? Time to surrender community involvement to the management of experts. Time also for emergency measures like special education and Ritalin. During this entire period, lasting five to seven years, outside agencies like the Ford Foundation exercised the right to supervise whether, quote, children's rights were being given due attention, fanning the flames hotter even long after trouble had become virtually unmanageable. The Behavioral Science Teacher Education Project, published at the peak of this violence, informed teacher training colleges that under such circumstances, teachers had to be trained as therapists. They must translate prescriptions of social psychology into practical action in the classroom. As curriculum had been redefined, so teaching followed suit. Third in the series of new gospel texts was Bloom's taxonomy, in his own words, quote, a tool to classify the way the ways individuals are to act, think, or feel as the result of some unit of instruction, end quote. Using methods of behavioral psychology, children would learn proper thoughts, feelings, and actions, and have their improper attitudes brought from home remediated. In all stages of the school experiment, testing was essential to localized to localize the child's mental state on an official rating scale. Bloom's epics spawned important descendant forms, mastery learning, outcomes-based education, and school-to-work government-business collaborations. Each classified individuals for the convenience of social managers and businesses. Each offered data useful in controlling the mind and movements of the young, mapping the next adult generation." End quote. Well, Gatto then writes this eviscerating paragraph. Quote, I have little doubt the fantastic wealth of American big business is psychologically and procedurally grounded in our form of schooling. The training field for these grotesque human qualities is the classroom. Schools train individuals to respond as a mass. Boys and girls are drilled in being bored, frightened, envious, emotionally needy, generally incomplete. A successful mass production economy requires such a clientele. A small business, small farm economy, like that of the Amish, requires individual competence, thoughtfulness, compassion, and universal participation. Our own requires a managed mass of leveled, spiritless, anxious, familyless, friendless, godless, and obedient people who believe the difference between Cheers and Seinfeld is a subject worth arguing about." End quote. All right. 
I'm going to keep reading here because this man is explaining how our society got to the deplorable state it's in today. And I think you are getting a good understanding of the depth of programming each and every one of us has been subject to from our very first day of school. Quote, the secret of American schooling is that it doesn't teach the way children learn, and it isn't supposed to. School was engineered to serve a concealed command economy and a deliberately re-stratified social order. It wasn't made for the benefit of kids and families, as those individuals and institutions would define their own needs. School is the first impression children get of organized society. Like most first impressions, it is the lasting one. Life, according to school, is dull and stupid. Only consumption promises relief. Coke, Big Macs, fashion jeans, that's where real meaning is found. That is the classroom's lesson, however indirectly delivered. The decisive dynamics which make forced schooling poisonous to healthy human development aren't hard to spot. Work in classrooms isn't significant work. It fails to satisfy real needs pressing on the individual. It doesn't answer real questions experience raises in the young mind. It doesn't contribute to solving any problem encountered in actual life. The net effect of making all schoolwork external to individual longings, experiences, questions, and problems is to render the victim listless. This phenomenon, has been well understood at least since the time of the British enclosure movement, which forced small farmers off their land into factory work. Growth and mastery come only to those who vigorously self-direct, initiating, creating, doing, reflecting, freely associating, enjoying privacy. These are precisely what the structures of schooling are set up to prevent on one pretext or another. As I watched it happen, it took about three years to break most kids, three years confined to environments of emotional neediness with nothing real to do. In such environments, songs, smiles, bright colors, cooperative games, and other tension breakers do the work better than angry works and punishment. The strongest meshes of the school net are invisible. Constant bidding for a stranger's attention creates a chemistry producing the common characteristics of modern school children, whining, dishonesty, malice, treachery, cruelty, unceasing competition for official favor in the dramatic fishbowl of a classroom delivers cowardly children, little people sunk in chronic boredom, little people with no apparent purpose for being alive. The full significance of the classroom as a dramatic environment has never been properly acknowledged or examined. The most destructive dynamic is identical to that which causes caged rats to develop eccentric or even violent mannerisms when they press bar for sustenance on an aperiodic reinforcement schedule, one where food is delivered at random but the rat doesn't suspect. Much of the weird behavior school kids display is a function of the aperiodic reinforcement schedule and the endless confinement and inactivity to slowly drive children out of their minds. Trapped children, like trapped rats, need close management. Any rat psychologist will tell you that." End quote. Now, Gatto wrote something that I have noted with regard to so-called 
educated people who I have observed for years to be quick to believe what they read and watch in the socially approved media sources. And it has always perplexed me how any quote unquote educated person can watch those news programs and listen to those talking heads that look like they belong in a wax museum and not catch the propaganda. On the effects of decades of Prussian schooling, Gatto wrote, quote, one consequence unexpected by middle classes, though perhaps not so unexpected to intellectual elites, was a striking increase in gullibility among the well-schooled masses. Jacques Ellul is the most compelling analyst of this awful phenomenon. In his canonical essay, Propaganda, written in 1965, he fingers schooling as an unparalleled propaganda instrument. If a school book prints it and a teacher affirms it, who is so bold as to demure? End quote. Of Ellul, Gatto writes, the book contains Ellul's theories about the nature of propaganda to adapt the individual to a society, to a living standard, and to an activity aiming to make the individual serve and conform, end quote. Now that makes me think of when I was studying with my first mentor in law, who by the way, had dropped out of school at the age of 16 and was entirely self-taught and regularly stumped judges and was the smartest person I have ever met. This guy saw right through the elements of social programming. And I remember him telling me of an eighth grade school trip to a local supermarket where the class got to see how donuts were made. He was pointing out the glaringly obvious dumbing down of American school children. Well, my time with him was deep deprogramming. And I remember talking about a friend of mine and I said to him, she's really smart. She went to Stanford. And he said, you say that like it's a good thing. Well, I got his meaning right away. And I never forgot that because some of the most gullible people I've ever met are also the most quote unquote educated. And the academics are the worst. The Western-inspired and Western-financed Chinese revolution, following hard on the heels of the last desperate attempt by China to prevent the British government traffic in narcotic drugs there, placed that ancient province in a favorable state of anarchy for laboratory tests of mind alteration technology. Out of this period rose a Chinese universal tracking procedure called the Dangan, a continuous lifelong personnel file exposing every student's intimate life history from birth through school and onwards. The Dangan constituted the ultimate overthrow of privacy. Today, nobody works in China without a Dangan. By the mid-1960s, preliminary, preliminary work on an American Dangan was underway as information reservoirs attached to the school institution began to store personal information. A new class of expert like Ralph Tyler of the Carnegie Endowments quietly began to urge collection of personal data from students and its unification and computer code to enhance cross-referencing. Surreptitious data gathering was justified by Tyler as, quote, the moral right of institutions. In 1973, Catherine Barrett, president of the National Education Association, said, quote, dramatic changes in the way we raise our children are indicated, particularly in terms of schooling. We will be agents of change, end quote. By 1989, a senior director 
of the Mid-Continent Regional Educational Laboratory told the 50 governors of American states that year, assembled to discuss government schooling, quote, what we're into is total restructuring of society, end quote. It doesn't get much plainer than that, and there is no record of a single governor objecting. Two years later, Gerald Bracey, a leading professional promoter of government schooling, wrote in his annual report to clients, quote, we must continue to produce an uneducated social class, end quote, to a public desensitized to its rights and possibilities, frozen out of the national debate, to a public whose fate was in the hands of experts. The secret was in the open for those who could read entrails. The original American ideals had been repudiated by their guardians. School was best seen from this new perspective as the critical terminal on a production line to create a utopia resembling Epcot Center, but with one important bionomical limitation. It wasn't intended for everyone, at least not for very long, this utopia. Out of Johns Hopkins in 1996 came this chilling piece of supporting data. The American economy has grown massively since the mid-1960s, but workers' real spendable wages are no higher than they were 30 years ago. That from a book called Fat and Mean about the significance of corporate downsizing. During the boom economy of the 80s and 90s, purchasing power rose for 20% of the population and actually declined 13% for the other four-fifths. Indeed, after inflation was factored in, purchasing power of a working couple in 1995 was only 8% greater than for a single working man in 1905. This steep decline in common prosperity over 90 years forced both parents from both parents from home and deposited kids in the management systems of daycare, extended schooling, and commercial entertainment. Despite the century-long harangue that school was the cure for unevenly spread wealth, exactly the reverse occurred. Wealth was 250% more concentrated by century's end than at its beginning. End quote. Gatto then quotes Noam Chomsky from the film Manufacturing Consent. Quote, I don't mean to be inflammatory, but it's as if government schooling made people dumber, not brighter, made families weaker, not stronger, ruined formal religion with its hard sell exclusion of God, set the class structure in stone by dividing children into classes and setting them against one another, and has been midwife to an alarming concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a fraction of the national community. Real school reform would have to overthrow a powerful form of mental conditioning, which has taken a century to implant. To one degree or another, all of us have been indoctrinated in a variety of ways to believe that the American experiment, which promised ordinary people sovereignty over their own lives, was wrongheaded and childish. Real school reform, would have to defeat the belief learned in school and reinforce through the media that ordinary people are too stupid, too irresponsible, too childish to be trusted to look out for themselves. When children are encouraged to run wild in school and to become stupid there, its poisonous lesson is hammered home for the rest of us day after day. We've all experienced it. No wonder we all believe it. The premises of scientific schooling seem impossible to dispute, so thoroughly have they been demonstrated by the form of forced schools, which corporations and the federal government imposed on us a century ago. 
After all, why should hopelessly ignorant people be allowed to make decisions, even intimate personal ones, like how to raise their own children? Certified experts are available who know vastly more about anything and everything. Thus has the Protestant Reformation, whose brightest product was America, been thrown on the scrap heap because if there's any bedrock of the Protestant Reformation, it was Luther's declaration, every man his own priest. Jefferson and Madison must have been loony to want us to trust the common people, end quote. At the end of his presentation, Gatto takes a stab at a reply to that. And I have to include this because it is important that we take in his words and endeavor to pass that wisdom on to others. Quote, to have better schools that serve families, communities, and individuals instead of suffocating them, we would need to trash certain assumptions. We would need to abandon entirely the idea that any such sociological reality as mass man actually exists, except in the minds of those who benefit from such a belief. We would have to believe what our fingerprints and our intuition tell us, that no two people are alike, that nobody can be accurately described by numbers and graphs, that trying to do this sets up an endless chain of future grief. We would have to accept that a fantasy like scientific pedagogy is impossible because each person has a private and a singular destiny. We would need to transfer faith from school and corporate experts and behave as if these principles were true, as over a million homeschooling families in this country do. We would need to wake up and admit that knowledge is a far cry from wisdom, that each American has the right to live as he or she deems wise. And if the way individuals choose to live and raise their kids means disaster for global corporations, as surely the way of life the Amish embrace, if it were embraced by too many, would mean disaster, then that fateful choice still needs to be honored because it is protected by the law that defines America, our founding documents. It's high time we all remembered what mankind needed America for in the first place. The brilliant dialectical balance struck by our founders was the only way to keep power weak and off balance, official power and popular power both. Popular will would beat back government tyranny. Government would check popular tyranny over minority rights. This constant confrontation, this unwinnable war between two flawed collectivizing principles, coercive government and bullying public opinion, will always produce liberty for those who want it. In a stalemate, liberty escapes as long as the argument is kept alive. It's only through enforced consensus, the product of too much of the wrong kind of schooling that America can fail. America is about argument, about doing things our own way. It is still the only place on the planet where one can publicly oppose authority without being beaten or killed or severely intimidated for that act of free will. The US Supreme Court wrote in a flag burning case that the only true test of freedom is the right to differ about things that touch the heart of the one existing order. And the court was right. That truly is the standard. Let us strike to the heart of this thing then and take back our children from the management engineers." End quote. All right, that is inspiring. Now, I wanna to touch on the basics of brainwashing 
And with relation to cults and other groups, you can see from everything John Taylor Gatto speaks to how primed people are for further brainwashing. Brainwashing is where a person's mind is repeatedly manipulated to accept a particular allegiance or ideology through a variety of methods. In a cult situation, initially, the atmosphere is very warm and friendly and positive because that will draw in the recruit who is then over-promised a number of wonderful things, which further entices them in, though in time, these promises will under-deliver. A religious or political cult will incorporate elements of mainstream religious or political concepts with their own unique doctrine, and that makes their rhetoric easier to accept, and it also makes it easier to collect new members. The best victims for cults are those who are either very highly idealistic or emotionally vulnerable. Cults promise a newfound family to the recruit, and they will love bomb that person, which for someone who's lost can be incredibly intoxicating to where they will put their full trust in the cult members. One of the key elements is that the recruit be cut off from their family of origin, along with friends and coworkers and sources of information that would compete with the cult's doctrines. It's essential that the recruit be immersed in the camaraderie of that organization. Some cults forbid members from leaving the group while others allow their members to come and go because the cult has a mental hold on its members, many of whom look to the group as their lifeline to love and community. And cults can hold that over them, threatening to excommunicate them if they wanna be more autonomous. Cults specialize in attracting members who are in crisis because that makes them easier to makes it easier to draw the individual in through psychological manipulation by members who will offer to listen, to help, to be there in a way the suffering person desperately needs. Touch can be used as well. Anything to show tenderness and love to make that person feel safe and hopeful. Next comes the introduction to the larger group, who are, of course, also friendly and welcoming and are offering the promise of friendship and family to where the recruit is receiving exactly what they crave emotionally. It's a whole new experience, and it sucks in the recruit to where the cult is all that matters and the outside world begins to lose importance. The recruit is made to feel absolutely safe and relaxed, and at some point, they meet the leader, who is usually very charismatic and friendly, and also very persuasive and highly manipulative. Just as they've manipulated the other members to adopt their way of thinking, so too they will do this with the recruit. I spoke about imitation in the first hour. Well, the leader is always looked up to in a cult, and pretty soon that recruit is repeating the slogans and adopting the sentiments and opinions of this charismatic leader. The leader will make it so that the new recruit believes only what he or she believes in, and if the leader changes to a different belief, the members will do the same without question. All critical thinking, if it's available at all, ceases in the mind of the recruit in favor of unquestioning faith in the cult. Cult members will often point out flaws in the recruit's way of thinking, behavior, or dress in an effort to manipulate them into accepting the habits of the cult as superior. They'll use guilt and shame, 
fear and coercion to wear down the recruit and get them to acquiesce. That is called coercive persuasion. And the recruit is always assured that the cult will make everything better. Peer pressure is heavily utilized to get the recruit to adopt the ways of the cult. Members will mess with the recruit's mind to confuse them and further shut down any shred of character of critical thinking the recruit might have. This is repeated so that the framework of the recruit's mind eventually collapses to the point where it can be easily molded. Abuse is used by some cults for coercion and control. Now there is always an outside enemy and that is designed to keep members contained within the confines and perceived safety of the cult. And if members don't live in a specific cult location, they'll share a home with a cult member or a cult elder so that they're always tied to the group. Members follow specific regimens that demand their obedience and humility, and good behavior is rewarded, of course, while failure to follow the exacting standards results in psychological and sometimes physical punishment that can range from ostracism, which is a highly effective mechanism of control, to criticism, uh, deprivation of food, sleep in particular, and in some cases, torture and continued reinforcement. When you have a society that has been indoctrinated into a government-run school system and deliberately not taught to think independently and critically, you have a society that is easily led, gullible and weak, to where they are prime targets for cults of any kind. Think of the grooming of children that is going on today through the internet and in schools, including kindergarten and elementary schools. There are countless stories now of distraught parents who discover through scouring their child's cell phone history or discovering what their teachers have been telling them that their child has been exposed to information that is inappropriate and dangerous to their well-being. That child is subjected to similar programming as a cult recruit to where they are encouraged to share their feelings, they're listened to and love bombed, and then the suggestions are made to exploit the child's sense of not belonging, of not feeling loved, of not feeling like they fit in. The parents are demonized along with any principles and beliefs the parents have endeavored to impart on their child. The teacher or individual who is doing the programming cultivates the child's trust to where that individual becomes the safe haven and trusted confidant of the child. And nothing the parent says or does has any effect on their brainwashed son or daughter. This is happening in schools and online every day in this country and around the world. How do we counter this as parents? Well, the first order of business is to monitor their cell phone activity. Limits need to be implemented or the cell phone gets taken away altogether. And I personally believe that small children have no business owning a cell phone. We have got to take our children out of these schools and we have to take education into our own hands, which of course is very difficult for most families because of how our society has been steered to where both parents are usually working, which leaves the child to the system to raise and any influence that family might have is blunted out by the powerful imposing of the state's ideologies. Several years ago, I worked for a little farm in Redmond, Washington that sold chicken feed, soil, plants, et cetera. It was a very sweet place. 
and I met a lot of great people there. Well, one day I was working in the sales office and a mother came in with her three sons. The youngest was around four and then the other uh, two boys were around 10 and seven. I was behind the register when the two older boys came over to look at the books in that area. Well, the older boy smiled at me and politely asked, may I look at this book? Which was the story's guide to raising chickens. Well, he didn't just pick it up and start thumbing through it. He asked my permission and I was actually shocked to see how well-mannered this boy was. I said, of course. And then he began a conversation with me and his younger brother joined in telling me that they have that book at home and they have their own little flock of chickens. And they were both very personable and obviously quite comfortable talking to adults. All three boys were delightful and there was something different about them. And I asked their mother, do you homeschool your boys? And she looked surprised and said, yes, how can you tell? And I said, how can I tell? Uh, let's see, they're well-behaved, they're not disrupting the place, they can converse with adults politely and confidently, they look me in the eye, they don't mumble, they're kind with each other, that's how I can tell. And that is the sad fact that John Taylor Gatto talks about, how schools have become a cesspit of bad behavior, and children's foolishness is not only tolerated, it's indulged. And that serves to further prevent them from developing as healthy, reasoning individuals able to craft a good life for themselves and their progeny. If Gada was alive today to see the shockingly, appalling, odious programming that is being foisted on children today, I think he would rally the very forces of the heavens for assistance. If I knew then when my daughters were young, what I know today, I would have homeschooled. My daughters were fortunate and they attended a Montessori school, but there was one year where they went to the local public school in Redmond, Washington, where my older daughter attended third grade and my younger daughter attended kindergarten. And I was shocked to see how dumbed down the kids were. My older daughter was a full year ahead of her third grade class. And so I made an appointment with the principal to talk to him about this. And to his credit, he was very candid. And he told me that with this new no child left behind policy, they were now teaching to the lowest denominator. And it is the bright children who were now losing out. Well, that was not to be my last visit to the principal because it turned out that my daughter's third grade teacher would yell at the children and was verbally abusive to where my daughter was afraid of her. And one day a parent told me this teacher lost it on one of the boys and told him, demanded that he hand her the fucking paper. Well, I marched back to the principal's office and he did nothing about it. So I made an appointment with the school board and I made a formal complaint and told them they just lost both my daughters from their system and I took them out of school and I found a Montessori school for them. And that was a big improvement. But a lot of these little schools, including Waldorf schools, have been co-opted and they're run by administrators who are in full lockstep with government programming. Now, another quote of Gatto sums that up nicely. He wrote, quote, administrative utopias are a peculiar kind of dreaming by those in power, driven by an urge to arrange the lives of others, organizing them for production, combat, or detention. 
The operating principles of administrative utopia are hierarchy, discipline, regimentation, strict order, rational planning, a geometrical environment, a production line, a cell block, and a form of welfareism. Government schools and some private schools pass such parameters with flying colors. In one sense, administrative utopias are laboratories for exploring the technology of subjection and as such belong to a precise subdivision of pornographic art, total surveillance and total control of the helpless." End quote. Now, I was very fortunate to have an ex-husband who paid for my daughter's schooling, and most people obviously do not have that option. Now, that said, we have a growing homeschool movement in this country, and I had a sister-in-law who homeschooled her children, and they were part of a vibrant homeschooling community, and like those boys at the farm, farm store, they were engaging and balanced, and they grew up to be successful in their chosen areas of study. We have got to take back our power and our rights as thinking, reasoning individuals. And we must seek out knowledge from sources that nourish our minds and the minds of our children. One of my favorite sayings, and I've shared this often, goes, every man has two educations. The first he's given, the second, more important, he gives to himself. When we give our power over to strangers, we risk losing whatever shred of it is left. We have the ability to make changes for ourselves and our families that will improve the quality of life for everyone. Just look at the many people who've left the corporate workplace and the intensity of the city to homestead and live a simpler life, often around community of like-minded individuals who are forging a way of life that is structured around family and a more wholesome lifestyle. People are waking up and realizing they've been played their whole lives, and they are seeing the con game of centralized, top-down tyranny. We are creative beings, and we can find solutions, and we can self-educate to where we learn what we are purposely not taught in school by seeking out the wisdom of the ancients and applying those principles. I will continue to share practical and inspiring ways in which to deprogram from this cult and forge a life that offers fulfillment and meaning. I don't see humanity as a cancer. I see a lost people. And that line from the Bible has been repeating in my mind for these last few years now. It says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. It also says, come out of her, my people. And my equity law teacher remind us, reminds us of that often. It means to get out of the system that was called Babylon, come out of the whore of Babylon. Our modern day name for it is the matrix. Well, that's a journey and I'm not out of it yet, but I have availed myself of knowledge that the majority of people do not have. And I will continue to study and see my way through. And obviously, if you are listening, you are on a similar path. So don't be afraid to see and examine the con, because once you see it, it's like the scales falling from your eyes. And then and only then do you have a shot at true freedom. And true freedom begins in the mind. Slancha.